Welcome to episode 68 of The People on Kei 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Patricia Fernandez and Jedediah Caesar. Patricia Fernandez is a Spanish-born artist living and working in Los Angeles. There is like something about the myth of Pyrene and like the voices of the people are sort of written on the trees and in the landscape. And I think that that's something that really drew me to kind of trying to map this 400 mile trail of the Basque starting in Bakersfield all the way up the Sierras and around because there's this other history that gets written by people doing these walks. Patricia's show, Here's My Name, is at the Todd Madigan Gallery at CSU Bakersfield, curated by Jedediah Caesar, and it runs through December 8th, 2018. We're going to be talking a lot about the historical material that Patricia used for this show, uh, specifically about the Basque immigrant community uh, that moved into the Great Basin in Central California Valleys. And we'll also be talking about the arbor glyphs that this community left carved into groves of aspen trees along their herding routes. Jedediah Caesar is an artist who lives in Los Angeles and also works in Bakersfield, California, as the director and curator of the Todd Madigan Gallery at CSU Bakersfield. I mean, this is the thing that I thought was interesting. I sort of imagined that you'd see an arborglyph. You'd be walking and, oh, there's one. And I never sort of thought about it as a space where you would enter into a grove and there'd be an entire grove that like over 30 or 40 years would just accumulate and accumulate and that this really would be a place where people would talk to each other. And later in the show, we'll hear a track from Geneva Skeen's new album, A Parallel Array of Horses. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. It really is. Patricia Fernandez and Jedediah Caesar, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. So, Patricia, you have a show that just opened uh, as this podcast airs at Todd Madigan Gallery at CSU Bakersfield. Jedediah, you curated, right? That's right, So, tell us about that. Uh, Well, I invited Patricia to do a show up there. Um, And it was really because I know her work that has to do with thinking about the land and people's movement through land and Bakersfield being the space that um, has a kind of uh, somewhat kind of unfixed quality. It's surrounded by mountains. It's the Central Valley. There's a lot of moving through. And I just had a feeling that she would have some interesting um, things to say about the space and and people's sort of ways of living in it, And um, which turned out to be really true. Um, she brought a lot of ideas about, well, it started with a conversation about really focused on the Basque community in Bakersfield. Yeah, I guess I didn't know that much about Bakersfield. I'd gone by there a few times, gone to the Basque bars. Yeah, I was super curious of the um, transhumance pastoralism, <laughs> the the type of sheep herding that was really prevalent and is still happening in the Pyrenees and how the Basque brought it to Bakersfield and took it like around the foothills of the Sierras and then up the 395 to like uh, Alancha, Mono Lake and that whole zone. And yeah, I didn't know too much about it. So when Jedediah gave me the opportunity to go uh, teach a class there and work on a show with some students, um, I thought it would be a great opportunity to research this. I'd just been at a residency in Mammoth in... Um, 
think it was May, springtime, and um, I had been seeing a lot of these arbor glyphs, kind of like the markings of the shepherds, the sheep herders, um, out in the Sierras, and I didn't really know what they were. And um, and these are these are writing. It's writing carved into trees, right? Yeah, it's a form of like scarring of the trees, and um, they did it with knives when they were out walking the sheep, and they would stop like by a creek or a little meadow, and they would um, carve into trees. And the writing, um, some is in French, Spanish, Basque, but it's a lot of symbols also, um, and a lot of dates because. Uh, part of this type of pastoralism is that um, you're constantly on the move. And depending on the seasons, you're in different parts of the mountains. So um, a lot of, like a huge part of the arbor glyphs are actually um, year dates. So you'll see a whole tree like that's carved from like 1926, 27, 28, 29, like all the way up to like, I don't know, 45. And then you'll have another one that's like all of the 70s. And it's the one sheep herder that's returning to the same spot and actually remarking or rescarring the tree because that's how you get to see the arbor glyphs because they're made on aspen trees that have a really particular type of bark and um, yeah when you cut into them they create like a scar. Can I can I ask you to back up and tell us what you know about how these Basque people ended up in the Central Valley of California in the mid 19th century? Yeah, so I guess I'm not a historian, but um, from what I know is that uh, during the gold rush, um, the 1860s, there was like a huge wave of uh, Basque immigrants. There were these um, special kind of sheep herding visas that were giving out. And um, it was really for economic reasons that um, a lot of young Basque men came. So the Basque region is like partially in France, partially in Spain, divided by the Pyrenees. And um, it was sort of like this stereotype that the Basque would know about the mountains and would know about sheep herding. And so because they were willing, um, they were they were taking very little pay to do this job that nobody else would want to do, which meant that you would be constantly on the move. So um, there's this like, it's kind of curious, actually, this is one of the reasons why I was really excited to do this project is because uh, in the fall, the Basque sheep herders would be in Bakersfield. And then in um, spring, um, they would be in the Mojave. And then in the summertime, they would be up by like Mammoth, Mono Lake and Yosemite area. So um, that was like a really interesting overlap for me because I had been doing that sort of route that year. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, there's, like, economic reasons, like, seasonal. Um, that's how they ended up in Bakersfield. Um, and then there was public land. So there was all this, like, free kind of grazing land. And so there was a lot of opportunity. Um, and I guess that's when John Muir also became a sheep herder. And there was sheep herding in Yosemite, which is something we could talk about later maybe. But um, yeah, so there were these waves of uh, immigration. Also later, um, yeah, during like the gold rush era and then later after like World War II, there was actually a shortage of men apparently or something that would be willing to do this job. So there were more Basque that came and then Spanish Civil War occurred. So, or like before that, so there was like that kind of the wars bringing people over and um, yeah, also, because I was yeah. going to say Bakersfield too. I think it's 
like it, this is sort of just drawn off of reading like Grapes of Wrath and some of yeah. these documents. I think people don't understand or I've sort of gathered working there that at a certain point in time, I think that part of the Central Valley was really like known as a place to go if you had any kind of agrarian skills. And I think it was really a place that people that were trying to come to America were looking for as a place to go to. If you like go back and read that book, I mean, there's a part where they come from, you know, Oklahoma and it's, it's sort of, they come over the mountains, the same kind of mountains there. Um, and they describe it as this kind of like paradise for farming, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it isn't quite that now for a lot of reasons, but, um, <laughs> You know, reading that, I think you get it takes you to another sort of way of thinking about the space and what it must have looked like for people. And I think also people sort of think about that, like the the people coming from Oklahoma and the Midwest, but not really realizing how diverse Bakersfield is. Um, we were speaking to a professor um, at, at Cal State Bakersfield uh, who's telling us there's something like there's more languages sort of indigenous languages of Latin America spoken there than anywhere else in the States. So, I mean, this kind of, there is this sort of, and has been for a long time, this influx for a really particular reason. I think it must be that there is something about the sort of combination of um, landscapes and as sort of potential for people. Patricia, your work in the Pyrenees Mountains, taking walks uh, across... Based on the Spanish Civil War, like the the, the Republicans the Republican, trying to get away from yeah. Franco, right? Yeah, getting uh, people leaving, you know, fleeing Franco essentially. And you did like a project uh, walking in the Pyrenees Mountains. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I did a project of retracing the footsteps of um, well, one particular person um, who told me their story of walking over at the end of the Spanish Civil War. And um, that was sort of me trying to remap that memory of them um, because they were unable to do that walk and sort of about um, recording that history, that oral history also. And um, yeah, I did spend a lot of time in the Pyrenees and did five different walks over there. Yeah, so I'm familiar with that area. And so like this kind of like the Basque sheep herders from that area kind of weirdly overlaps like in Bakersfield. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, yeah, so the Basque sheep herders, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, it's the stereotype that um, they are sheep herd, they have sheep herding knowledge because they were all really young when they came over here. But there is definitely like something that I see like that's quite similar um, culturally that's like been brought over here. And there there is like something about the Pyrenees Mountain. Like, I think I was telling you, Jedediah, about, like, the myth of Pyrene and, like, the fact that these, the the sort of, the voices of the people are sort of written on the trees and in the landscape. And I think that that's something that really drew me to kind of trying to map this 400-mile trail of the Basque, starting in Bakersfield all the way up the Sierras and around, because there's this other history that kind of gets written by people doing these walks. Um, yeah, I mean, it started off a lot thinking about the map. Yeah, the map. The map is this kind of <laughs> massive, super massive object that you kind of can't wrap your head around now because it involved literally walking for three or four months mm-hmm. continuously. You just can't think about it. And even when we went to go kind of reconstruct the map, we were thinking a lot about going out in the field, taking students. 
and you go looking for where this trail would be, and you realize now you're, it's this combination of, um, you know, BLM land, private ranch land. It's been paved over in a lot of cases because, you know, recently, maybe as recently as the 70s, or maybe now to some degree too, you know, they, they would drive the sheep now on the same routes in trucks, yeah. but in fundamentally the same passes, the same kind of direction. Um, it was hard to reconstruct the land, um, but then these arboglyphs become this kind of evidence of a different kind of aspect of it. You know, the Basque yeah. thing, and this is, Patricia spent a lot of time up there looking at them, but we've looked at a lot of images or things, and it's funny because it also includes this whole much more complex history. Where like the Basque people include, there's like French Basque and there's uh, Spanish Basque and there's some evidence of... There's people from Navarra. People coming back and forth on the trees and crossing out each other's kind of hometowns and things like that. So you get a lot more of this kind of social history that's really complicated. Uh, and there's an Americanization that you can track if I'm not, if I remember about the, these arboglyphs is that like same same person carving into the same tree... And maybe their name will change. Is that like be, become more Americanized? I remember reading about that. Well, yeah, point. there's definitely like Pete, who was or is also Pierre. Right. You know. Right on his um, third round through that area. Yeah, I mean, I've never actually seen that, but yes, that right. happens. Um, especially like the ones that I've spoken to in Bakersfield that are like the bartender, the wool growers. You know, all the older um, sheep holder, sheep herders that are obviously not doing that anymore. Like. I attended a uh, Black Basque club uh, ceremony, and they were just, yeah, um, trying to now assimilate because they're no longer in these isolated spaces. You know, they have to kind of um, be within society. Um, yeah, so their their name definitely changes. But I don't know. They were sort of laughing at me also. Like, I was definitely, like, the weirdo outsider asking them questions about, like, what 400-mile sheep trail? What are you talking about? Like, back then, there was, like, no trails. We could walk wherever we wanted to walk. You know, there was freedom. There's um, none of this, like, private land. And, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of laws that passed to sort of uh, destroy the free movement of the sheep herders. Um, so there is some antagonism for sure. Ranchers, American ranchers versus the Basque tramps. Which is funny because I don't know. I get this funny feeling that, you know, if any, if you go to Bakersfield with somebody from there and they want to like take you out, they'll invariably take you to one of these, you know, Basque quote in quotes restaurants, um, which is this long communal table generally, and you eat generally family style, right? And it's really the the thing is a lot of these places were boarding houses for these sheep herders when they weren't out on the trail. That's how like Noriega's, for example, which is the sort of most well known of them, um, operated. You know, it was like a, a hotel for men with a with a bar and a dining room, and I assume the idea was you know you'd eat together, you'd hang out together, and then when everybody had their jobs, they'd go out into the along the trail, um, and and so. I don't know, on some level, it feels a little bit like it's been, I don't want to say Americanized necessarily. I'm trying to think of what the word would be. Well, um, it's like a history that's like really sort of, you know, trying to be packaged in a certain way. I mean, um, it's very complex. Go, it's complicated because when you go there, you're sort of, if you actually go eat dinner, let's say at Noriega's or something, you sit down. And because you're all sitting at a table and you're all kind of all 
push together. You're going to meet all kinds of Bakersfield people. It's, it's, it is a scene for locals. It's not like some tourist trap, I guess. I don't want to like paint it that way. It's not um, Disney-fied or something. No, yeah. it's not. Yeah. No, and I think the Basque, the world, like the sort of community of Basque people in Bakersfield, you know, now probably a lot of them are landowners, ranchers, well, they, right? They, they did. They a lot of them became yeah. in position in relationship to all of this, right. all the politics of these things or, you know, sort of would have other people taking their sheep out into these trails, I imagine. So it, is, it gets really complex when you're trying to actually do, talk to people about it about this history, because of course it's all filtered through people's present day concerns, right? They, they want to kind of tell you what they want to tell you, which is kind of, I guess, where the project to some degree, I think got really interesting is it moved away from sort of trying to track a factual map of space mm-hmm. and started opening up into all kinds of kind of, all these different narratives that had to a kind of, of coexist. A lot yeah. of speculating. But then also there is this like overabundance of evidence in terms of arboriculus. It's just, I mean, I don't, to describe, maybe it'd be helpful or to, for people, because I, I think it's hard to kind of imagine what these places are like, like one of these kind of places where you go see them. Well, yeah. I mean, it was funny too, when I first started going out to Bakersfield and like trying to talk to the class and everyone being like, okay, I'm going to go look, I'm going to go find some of these. You know, when I was up in Mammoth for that residency I was talking about, I had sort of seen them in my periphery, like when I was going on hikes, but I didn't know what they were. So once I like connected the dots and figured like that, oh, these are these marks that are being made by these people that travel these particular routes, um, I knew how to look for them or to find them. But it definitely took me like three weeks of going up just like, like, okay, I'm going to walk up this mountain and see what I find. And um, now, like, especially now with the, uh, in fall, like with the leaves changing and them being aspen trees, you can very much like, you just kind of drive up the 395 and you see like these swirling S's of yellows or oranges and you're just like, okay, that's, that could be a place. So wherever there's um, a meadow or a creek, uh, aspen trees, you're going to, very possibly find um, these markers or, or a place that would be uh, comfortable to settle in. And so there's something really kind of spectacular about seeing these arborglyphs. When you finally do see them, they come, they're like in groves. So they kind of create almost these like circles um, around the land where the sheep, I suppose, would be just like grazing. And then the sheep herder would sort of stand behind the trees. So the carvings are kind of behind the circle, but they're kind of in dialogue with each other too. And um, yeah, there's just like a lot of um, repeating symbols that after a while you begin to um, recognize a particular man's handwriting uh, or the initials, um, and you can really follow the path. Like there's this one guy, I think his his name is Ramon Martinez, R.M., and he's actually from Santander. He's not from the Basque country, so a lot of people, I guess, up there were like crossing his stuff out. But maybe that's why he was so persistent and marking like every like grove of trees that he passed through. So you can really follow his um, trail um, up into the mountain. Um, and so, yeah, he just would write his name over and over and over again. And, um, yeah, some of these trees I didn't mention are, uh, kind of the, the outer layer is crumbling because they're scars. They're sort of falling into the, the ground. And, um, 
yeah, chunks of trees are just falling off. And I guess aspens only live for 100 years 150 max. 150 years. Or, mm. yeah. yeah. So, so. so we're kind of at the end of the life cycle for yeah. a lot of the trees right. that got some of the early markings, yeah, which they is something that people are, I think. When they were already 25 a, years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and there's a group of people that are, I think, pretty mm-hmm. cognizant of this. I mean, this is the thing that I thought was interesting. It is my misunderstanding or misconception about it is I sort of imagined that you'd see an arborglyph. You'd be walking and, oh, there's one. And I never sort of thought about it as a space where you would enter into a grove and there'd be an entire grove that like over 30 or 40 years would just accumulate and accumulate and that this really would be a place where people would talk to each other. And it makes a lot of sense, but it, it's interesting because it just, I sort of, if you look at any literature, it's always sort of an individual, you know, glyph here and there, and they're describing it. It's sort of this sort of anthropological problem of it. You know, everything gets separated. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. But when you're describing it, it's like, it's a, it's a space. It's like a, a large, you know, three-dimensional conversation happening. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can hear The People every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Or you can find us anywhere else you find your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Uh, We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. You can go to insertblancpress.net. Click on The People at the top of the page. All the episodes are there. Uh, And if you like the show or you know someone who would like the show, then uh, tell a friend. And I want to tell you about Familiar Laundry by Jeremy Kennedy, which is an exhibition opening on November 23rd, 2018 at General Projects Gallery in Lincoln Heights. It's pretty exciting. This is Kennedy's first solo show in Los Angeles, and you should come by the opening on Friday, November 23rd, or come for a performance night on Friday, December the 7th, and even maybe swing through for open hours on Thursday nights through the run of the show until the closing party. On January 18th, 2019, you're also invited to that. Um, It's a great exhibition. Really enjoyed working with Jeremy on this uh, show. And uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah, go by. The work is really great. And now we're going to return to our conversation with Patricia Fernandez and Jedediah Caesar. The classes, uh, the show is attached to a class. So um, there's actually, so it's it's a class where students, uh, undergrad students sign up to work with an artist. And it takes place in one semester, which means um, from the kind of from the first day of school to the opening is about ten weeks. So in that time, you know, it's um, there's a lot of going on. There's there's students getting to know this artist. This artist thinking about how to deal or or work with these students, what to sort of do. So um, in this case, you know, uh, that 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 in some sense like formed part of the show, which had a lot to do with show the students. Um, we sort of learned all of these techniques that Patricia uses, wood carving and all these things that really were new for them um, and, and became really, really good at it and sort of produced all this work, inlay work and carving. Uh, and I think in a way, get a real clearer understanding of what it means to, uh, you know, make work, but also make an exhibition as opposed to sort of a single object, but think like more broadly. Um, yeah, and I think they had to follow, like, my, or sort of try to come to understand how I was thinking about making work, because I think it changed a lot from mapping to, like, object making and to, like, me going to these places and returning with information and, like, me processing that information and translating it, translating it to them and, like, 
yeah, even like our conversations of like, okay, what's happening next, you know, um, really like trying to figure out how to process all this stuff. Right. Because I, you know, because I don't live in Bakersfield, I live here. So, you know, Thursday, we would meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Thursdays, Patricia and I would say bye, see, see you on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, there'd always be, she would have driven all over the Sierras, collected sort of like arbor glyph uh, scraps or molds of them, um, met all kinds of strange Obsidian. people. Obsidian, um, gone into hot springs, met some locals, had stories, sometimes like sort of frightening stories, and um, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of ideas that needed to then get worked through really quickly to start the next week of work. Yeah. So, can you can you give us some uh, some stories or just a generalization about your time, like when you when you go off and do this stuff? Like, what's what's what happens? Um. Well, I visited Tehachapi a little bit um, to try to find out what some of those paths coming out of there into the um, Sierras were. Uh, I went up Lake Isabella, Kern County. It's really fascinating. <laughs> and uh, up the 395, Elantia, Lone Pine, Bishop. Um, I tried to speak with a lot of like forest service people because I knew that there were arborglyphs out there. So this is another thing, you know, they're, they're culturally modified trees. It's like they're preserved, they're in preserved pieces of land. So they're in national parks. So they've also been damaged in this way. Like you could consider it being like damaged by humans or not, you know, you could see it as like something that's of uh, historical significance. Um, so speaking with people that worked for Forest Service, uh, archaeologists, um, anthropologists, and um, a lot of them wouldn't want to share the information of where these arboglyphs were, uh, much like the petroglyphs that are up by Bishop because they don't want people to deface them anymore. But, I mean, there's there's something really interesting about that because, you know, it's like over years, like people are making these markings and there is some kind that is some kind of record of a culture. So yeah, I guess I was just like learning about BLM land, what it means, what are the laws, um, and why we want to preserve these trees, um, why there's logging in some areas, and um, what happens with this information. And um, yeah, and then I went to the Basque bars. That was research. Um, <laughs> That's research. Yeah. And yeah. it was mostly like, uh, me just sort of waiting to see what they would say because a lot of the um, uh, retired sheep herders don't really want to talk about that time uh, in their lives because it's not necessarily like a wonderful time. It's one of isolation and difficulty and loneliness. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the arborglyphs, would you read through them, they read almost like a record of this this kind of loneliness that these people are going through. I mean, there's the really, I mean, there's these trees of the dates one after another after another, and they read, I don't know if it was somewhere we read this, but it sort of reads a little bit like a prison sentence, sadly. You know, you sort of people Counting like, days. I'm back at the same tree 14 years after I first came to this tree. Right. Right? This sort of this loop that happens. And um, I don't know. I think it's kind of easy to sort of imagine it uh, I guess in this kind of 
pastoral way, right? This sort of beauty of Romantic? The, 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 the nature and the, all of this, but it's, it's also like um, a, complicated, a complicated space for people to, to go through, to be sort of thr- thrust into. Um, and you get all of these kind of, you know, and one of the things that's interesting with Ar- Arborglyphs too is um, you get all of these ideas. You get all of these thoughts. You get kind of like your run-of-the-mill, like I was here kind mm-hmm. of thoughts, but you also get much more sort of fantasy or fantastic thoughts. Yeah. Such as what? Well, there's like that really beautiful carving of uh, somebody's like out- hand outlined, which was sort of like the t- that's how I got the title of the show uh here is my name because it's sort of about being here and being present and um kind of being in this void and making a mark um there's also what um is known as the porno grove um i was reading a couple like essays on this stuff and um i found it really interesting because they have these categories for the trees there's like the trees of like loneliness and lament and then there's the 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 sexual fantasy trees and then there's um the political trees and um there's a few trees that um talk about politics that were happening back in um in spain and in the basque country there's a couple of uh guernica markings um and there's some um pro-franco uh arborglyphs and there's some like anti-fascism um kind of uh signs so um yeah i mean it's it's a really interesting dialogue i think uh one thing that i kind of really got into was the porno grove because um well kind of like go back a little bit into this uh previous time i'd spent in the sierras um around the the uh ghost town of bodhi which was a really uh, rich mining mining town at a certain point um there was like a Chinatown there. There was uh, a red light district. There was like this booming community. There it was the the gold rush era, and um, there were a lot of um, prostitutes that were there, um, kind of as part of like like a really vital part of society, and um, a lot of these women were actually also immigrants, much like the Basque. So there's this overlap with the women that were in the Sierra territory. And um, maybe some kind of uh, kinship, you know, um, that these women felt as outsiders, much like the Basque men did. So there's all these groves where they kind of um, put these women on the uh, barks of the trees. They carve them um, because they were sort of the um, the kind that, well, they're mostly the only um, solace that they had in this loneliness they were, as, as I read somewhere, they were like the only reason why they ever went to the boarding houses to uh, clean themselves up, you know? Uh, it kind of kept them like human. Uh, from my experience, if you stay out too long in the mountains, you sort of turn animal. Uh, you know, this is like a sort of normal human thing. Um, and so I found all the um, portraits of these women to be really quite beautiful. Um, there is one woman that seems to appear quite a lot. Um, her name is Yanni. What was I, the timeline for her? Well, like it, this was just a st- the 20s, I think. I think a lot of this was like, oh, she wears a flapper hat in many of the arbor glyphs, so it's probably around that era. And um, I was out walking with some friends in um, like the Mammoth area, 
And um, one of uh, one of my friends was like, oh, maybe Yanni is Lottie and Lottie is Yanni and like Mari is Yanni. Okay, so I'll explain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I was uh, up at Forest Island at this residency, I became really fascinated by this woman, Lottie, who made all these uh, landscape paintings of Yosemite. And because they were not realistic uh, depictions of this uh, kind of glorious national park, she never um, was able to um, be accepted by her community. And they were sort of these psychological landscapes. And I thought they were really fascinating because when you're um, in these spaces that are so like sublime, it's very hard to, I don't know, like I just find it really hard to make art when you're like in these spaces especially like landscape painting so anyway she was like very much shunned because she was once a dancer in the red light district and also because she wanted to be a painter um and so um yeah i just uh began researching this figure of lottie um who was an outcast and um one of her paintings is included in the show or one of her uh a copy that i made of her painting is in the show um, and from there on, I was thinking a lot about like painting the psychological spaces, uh, spaces of inhabiting like the Sierras. And so a lot of those paintings that you see in the show are about like that landscape that is so hard to depict because it's so beyond like what you're really seeing. It's like this other experience. Um, and so, yeah, my friend was like, well, maybe Lottie is Yanni. And so it's this, this figure of this woman that's like uh, maybe a woman from the mountains. I don't know. And then I was thinking about like the the Basque uh, mythology. There's um, this uh, figure, um, and it's not really. I mean, like, so Basque have this like traditionally they're like uh, into like uh, the sun, the cult of the sun. So um, I mean, I'm not. I can't say I'm Basque, so I don't. You know, this is not part of my own personal history. But from what I know, um, this figure of Mari is uh, like a sun goddess woman that happens to live in, in the mountains, particularly in the Pyrenees. We also have like the myth of Pyrene, um, who, who was a Greek goddess that was shunned and had to live in the mountains. So all these like women in the mountains appearing and like vanishing and reappearing to like those that walk the mountains, I thought was like really kind of um, had like a really uh, rich narrative. So Mari is sort of like Mary, the figure of Mary also. And um, she was known to appear to the Basque sheep herders when they were lonely in um, the walking in the forest. And um, she would kind of emerge from these caves and um, under moonlight, the bravest might uh, try to find the path to her cave. And if you entered her cave, you would live forever, sort of how the story goes. Um, and I was thinking a lot about this, like, because I was walking a lot and uh, in this landscape uh, when the full moon was um, lighting the night. And so... Am I, am I, like, not remembering correctly, or is there something with Yanni where, like, these depictions of her... In the trees, they happen for like something along forty or fifty years. Yeah, there's something like a, a way that like she reappears over many like generations, 
So it's sort of not clear whether it's just the same sort of historical person or whether the because she is a historical person, right? Yeah, She's a person definitely. that we know lived and and whether she sort of passes into something mythological or whether it's sort of always this. It's, it's such a um I don't know the whole sort of collection of um, and Lonnie too. It's sort of there's these historical aspect of her, but then it it sort of feels like an allegory of this particular time, yeah. And trying to find a place in this very specific kind of universe in terms of like mores and socially and shifting from one position to another position and how difficult that shift would be. Yeah, I mean, um, the the women that were in the Sierras, the women of the West, I mean, they were definitely, like, always, um, yeah, I mean, they were moving, constantly in movement, searching for opportunity, but their opportunities were limited because they were immigrants oftentimes or um, because, um, yeah, as women, they had really limited uh, options as to what they could be, right? Um yeah, and Yanni does appear as this, like, transforming human abstracted form on the trees. Sometimes she's, like, a fertility goddess, too. Like, I mean, like, her breasts and her buttocks are very exaggerated, you know. Um, oftentimes there's, like, uh, men being engulfed by her or, like, trying to come out of her. Maybe they're, like, giving birth to life. I don't know. I mean, she becomes a symbol for so much more. Um, and I think that maybe like what I found really interesting was the fact that on, in these spaces, on these trees, like both like the Basque sheep herders and these women were able to find a place, you know, like to actually have, make a mark of sorts, um, and create some kind of uh, collective. You're listening to the people on K-Chunk 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find uh, the people wherever you find podcasts, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those places, Overcast. And if you uh, like the show and you're there, you could leave us a rating or a review. And even more importantly, just tell a friend about it. Um, You know, tell people that you're listening to it and it's a great show. And now we're going to go back to our conversation with Patricia Fernandez and Jedediah Caesar. Right. So we were talking. So one of the things... um about well I, I will say this I, I've only been a, a curator for a short period of time I did things in a curatorial fashion but this is sort of my I, I still sort of new to the whole process of working with other artists and thinking a lot about or, or getting to um, experience a lot of the ways that they work um, which I think is one of the really interesting things about how a show happens um, so I think this thing with, uh, Patricia that I, I've been interested in thinking about is this whole, uh, interest she has in, uh, transhumans, which probably maybe you want to like sort of elaborate on a little bit for people what it means. But, but, but for my understanding, one of the things I've seen is that, there's a way of going about sort of accumulating information and accumulating material that has a lot to do with a practice of transhumans. So it's not just this kind of um, interest that sits out here as a kind of almost academic concern. 
it's a way of thinking about something and also practicing it that generates works. And it's been really interesting to see this happen over the course of what's been, you know, 10 weeks of working together on this project. But maybe you could say sort of, because I think not everybody knows what this means, transhumans. Um, well, I mean, it's particular to um, a type of um, pastoralism. I mean, it's, it's like transhumans' paths are paths created um, according to seasons. So the sheep herders would be in a certain area one time of the year. And then when, when the uh, food was exhausted, they were moved elsewhere. And they're sort of waiting for rain to happen or for seasonal change to be able to return back to that place. And I guess it's a lot about situation and being in a particular place at a particular time. Um, so yeah, I think in my own practice, uh, oftentimes what leads me, I mean, a, a project will sort of unfold into another project because I think of my practice as very research-based. So there's a lot of things that happen sort of outside of the studio uh, and then they get like brought into uh, a workspace of sorts. I'm making most of the work up there in the gallery actually at this time, um, which has been really interesting. Um, while I've sort of been on the road for a few months now. And um, yeah, I think it's sort of about listening to the um, people that are around you, sort of guiding you because I am an outsider in Bakersfield, definitely have been invited there to um, uh, see SUB. And I'd never really spent time in Bakersfield, so it was really important for me to get to know kind of like the people that were there, uh, what kind of community it was. And yeah, and people kind of came in quickly. I mean, I think this is this really caught a lot of people's imagination. They they jumped in, but but also this there's this aspect of the project that like you were in the epicenter of a of a monocultural agriculture. That where things happen, you know, tomatoes happen for 17 square miles and then they're replaced by like cotton, you know, like driving in the 99, you just, you know, over a whole year you watch, you know, it's almost like these seasons changing. You watch like one crop go down, another crop come up. It just rotates through. And this thing that you're talking about is this way of anticipating what's ahead and behind you and, you know, sort of thinking about your working in space in a really different way. Like if if monocultural agriculture is this kind of grid, the transhumans is a very different type of object, if you want to think about it as objects. I mean, I think of everything as objects that way. My <laughs> brain works. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot of, like when we say research, we spent some time um, with Chris in the rare maps and books area looking at these old 1800s maps of the, you know, trying to understand the trails. But then also you come home with these stories of meeting people that built a hot spring next to a river. Yeah, tell us that one, and please. And yeah. they have information. Yeah, so I guess the thing was that we couldn't, we were really frustrated and we couldn't really find a trail, right? These trails don't really exist. The 400-mile trail, there's like... Uh, I don't know, an entrance in some like book at the library that we found that described the place where this might have started or not. But so you don't really know, but you have these locations. So I tried to go to all of these locations and sort of like set myself into them somehow. And um, I think the first 
couple weeks, I um, went up to Lake Isabella, and uh, I I did some walking around there, and um, I felt like it was very difficult to get any information from the official gatekeepers of information like the Forest Service people, and so I decided to go down to a hot spring that was along the Kern River, and um, I met this woman. Um, well, when I kind of like walked down to the hot spring, her dog bit my knee, um, just to start off. And uh, um, she was like, oh, don't be afraid, come on in. And it was very hot, but you know, I thought I'd put my feet in for a while. And then she was telling me about how she had built the um, the bath of the, of the hot spring. It was like super elaborate. It had some shark's teeth in it from like the mountains nearby. And fossilized. She was, yeah, fossilized. Yeah, from which is like- Shark Tooth Mountain. Wow. You guys so amazing. Heard of that? No. Yeah. Uh, it's a very sort of uh, iconic place in Bakersfield. Yeah, wow. she did tell me not to go digging around there because you might get- uh, What's that? Yeah, valley fever. Yeah. And so I was like, oh yeah, I heard about that. And <laughs> and then there were like other pieces of glass yeah. she found along the way. And I mean, I thought this was like so amazing. I love this idea of a pragmatic artist. So you're making work with the things that are around you. And so they'd built these tubs and they'd incorporated some of the old like uh, tubs that were part of the uh, gold mining days, like from the, the miners that were there. Um, and- yeah, we just sat around for a while, and I told her it was too hot to get into the hot spring. So she was like, you should rump, jump into the river. And she's like, it's really kind of cool if you, like, jump into this spiral that's happening there in the uh, rapid water. It does this thing where the current will take you out into the river, and then it'll like, push you right back in, and you'll do this loop. And then you just let your body go, and then it'll push you right back onto the steps of the hot spring bath. I'm having a panic attack. Just <laughs> and so she was like, you know, really accommodating. And I was like, well, I jumped into the spiral that she spoke of. And uh, it was kind of great. Like I just let go and then it just pushed me right back into the bath where she was. So, um, you know, I um, just uh, had to listen to her. I mean, this is sort of part of like uh, what one has to do in order to um meet people you sort of like accept where they're at and like you uh try to enter their world and their mind perhaps I don't know I mean I just felt like um it was the only way that I could kind of continue my conversation with her as if I jumped into the river uh and then it was uh, a lovely afternoon spent with a local and then I did learn a lot more about water rights and uh, the damming that is going on and about the ranchers in that zone. And um, yeah, then later she told me about the current killer. And then I came back to class and the students were all just like, don't you know about yeah. the current killer? Yeah, you don't killer? get in the Kern. What are you doing? Um, the yeah. Kern killer being the, the river, river itself. Yeah, the river itself. So yeah. there's, I mean, but, but that's the thing. It's like there are people there that know the way of the river, right? So it's like those right, are the people right. that you have to find to guide you in a certain direction. And but that's the whole thing, right? That's the whole thing of these sort of uh, different way of thinking about this agriculture or like it does seem like there is some sort of relationship to that. I mean, and, and even like I just thinking while you're talking about this, like it's funny because because of the structure of this particular situation around the class, it's like our students you know, CSUB is is a commuter school, and I think when I first got there, I thought, oh, it's just I just imagine like all the 
the students live in dorms and it's Bakersfield. They live all over the place. I remember mm -hmm. talking to students who were coming from Tehachapi or coming from, I mean, you know, an hour and a half away yeah. or they live out on more rural spaces. Um, I've had students that like own 500 head of cattle and like ranch them on the weekends. You know, it's not, not all the kids are sort of not, not, they're not all the students are out there. Um, you know, a lot of them live in Bakersfield too, but they know the space. They, yeah, it's they their have space. more knowledge than I do. So right. you do so have to this like. interesting way they, they can kind of say, hey, I don't know. They, they kind of speak to you and you speak to them and it goes back and forth. And it has been going back and forth in an interesting way. Because you're talking about something that they kind of have a stake in here. Yeah. And I think that's like a lot how I make my work, I guess. I'm sort of interested in connecting these spaces to the people that inhabit them and um yeah uh they i mean as an artist like for sure um people that i'm working with have more knowledge than i do and so i can't really make the show or the work that i'm making without them you know so they are a really huge part of it and I can share some of like what I know in the process of making work, but um, they're also like very connected to the materials or to the stories and to the land. Speaking of materials, let's talk about obsidian. Um, I had used obsidian in uh, some work before in a show. I think that's how we met each other or like, no, I mean, you came to a show where I had some obsidian and that's like the last show. Yeah. And yeah. bones. The bone and bone. bones. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about yeah. materials. Yeah. 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 As a as a picker upper of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also. Um, yeah. As people who like to. Uh, yeah. If I see obsidian, forge, I also pick it up. Pick it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of uh, pieces that are that do get embedded into the table the communal table taken from like Norega's communal table as we like kind of create this map out of fragments or you know found objects found pieces we uh, as a class went out to the dry river that's like in front of the gallery and picked out some seashells which is the Kern River which by the time also. it gets close to the school it's sort of been taken in by the refineries and diverted and diverted and diverted so that it's just a dry riverbed. Maybe it's sort of like a sunken area. Yeah. I don't know, a thousand feet across. It's enormous. Yeah. Like if it's a river, it's enormous. And so, when it's dry, it's just this kind of very strange landscape. Yeah. And so they, well, you guys took me there. I didn't really know about it. And so we found some seashells. Um, and brought those into the sculpture and then later found some obsidian in uh, a place up by Mammoth. Actually, a Mammoth local told me that I should go to this mountain to find some more arborglyphs. And this was Glass Mountain, which is like one of the highest mountains in that area, in the Mono Lake area. And um, yeah, there's like trees growing on a glass mountain, essentially, which is like totally surreal. And there's like yellow aspen leaves sort of fallen on top of this black, shiny rock. It's really it sounds incredible. Outrageous. What the fuck, yeah. dude? I can't yeah. believe I haven't been there. Yeah, well, or I've, I've, what, I've never even say, heard One of thing it. about this project is every week, every Tuesday, <laughs> Patricia comes home and tells me about things she's done. And I just think, um, I, I didn't do any. Those, that sounds so much more exciting <laughs> and interesting. Um, like, I really envy this kind of, like, traveling project you're doing. Yeah. And so, I mean, 
I'm just thinking about like all these like little pieces that can sort of mark the terrain that right. we that I've walked, you know, that I've crossed. Um, and obsidian was like a huge uh, mineral that was like found all over. And, you know, it, it has some like properties that relates to the third eye. You know, it's this like clearing stone, which I think is kind of really interesting. Um, but I think for me, like the embedding of uh, the serpentine and um all these like some of these like uh, volcanic rocks that i found also really had to do a lot with like my inability to map but also was a way that the sheep herders um it it was a thing the sheep herders did right so i had read about this one sheep herder that uh found a shell and then on his like lonely nights was whittling I remember I was like trying to teach my students how to whittle. We're all learning and sort of thinking about like the meditative act of like constructing something from what you have. And he placed a seashell on this whittled stick that he had and then he buried it. And 40 years later, he went to retrieve it and it was still there. Um, So, you know, thinking of like us creating these artifacts that are already sort of like... um, you know, part of the land, mm-hmm. um, and thinking again about like culturally, mod- culturally modified trees, um, and how you um, see all these like levels of history and um, transformation. You know. Um, yeah, we have this. I mean, it sh- it should be mentioned that all of this embedding, all of this stuff is happening in this massive slab of a pine tree. That's from Fresno, that right? We found, or nearby um, at this hardwood dealer in Bakersfield, and. It's like 16, 16 18 feet long. And it's about a three-inch cross-section. So it has all of this sort of, if you you look at it, it's got the shape of a tree, you know, but it's it's flat. And so everything is sort of sunken into it. And it becomes this, like, reservoir for all of these ideas and these bits that come back. I mean, it does seem like there's something really interesting in this sort of reciprocal way that you go out, you come back. You collect this sort of evidence. You go out to look at other evidence, and just the tenuousness of it, you know, in this situation where you know, there's not like a really fixed space. I mean, the, the, the exhibition becomes fixed, but it's temporary. Yeah. And so for this time, we have this kind of fixed conversation, but then it's gonna dissipate again, the way all art shows dissipate. Um, but it's just interesting to sort of like that it draws in. I mean, I've been really aware of it as as a space that um, is sort of concentrating all these ideas. And it's been really interesting to kind of have them come there. You know, the obsidian comes from Obsidian Mountain, the serpentine. Um, we have these kind of casts of some of the arbor glyphs are, that are their own kind of object that are there, but kind of as close as you could get to an arbor glyph without taking an arbor glyph. Um, yeah. And then the paintings, which are really like a thinking through of this space of being in the space. You know, you can't transport all the people to the space. So the paintings and the work seem a lot like trying to like, what would you how would you sort of give people a sense of the space without some kind of like attempt at reproduction? Because nothing in it is about reproduction. Well, I guess the casts are kind of so literally about reproduction, but. It almost seems like it just collapses back into material. But it's it's just an interesting kind of way of trying to think about this wide open space of of um, ideas that these arboriculus actually live in and that all these people actually live in. 
you know, right. the characters and the sheep herders and all of that. Yeah, I think I was trying to record things in like multiple ways, you know, um, yeah. to be able to sort of uh, capture the most of the experience of like actually seeing these, finding these in a space. Um, it must be really shocking to walk into a grove. It's exciting. Yeah, totally. Imagine. Well, everybody should get up to Bakersfield for this show. Uh, Patricia, Jedediah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. (laughs) You're listening to The People in Kaichung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. I just want to let you know that our interstitial music, as always, is Ock Fifth by the great Lewis Keller. We love him. You should check out his work. He's a really great composer and musician. And a good friend. And remember to find The People anywhere where you find your podcasts. Uh, And while you're there, uh, be kind and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us. Yeah. And now we're going to go out with a song from Los Angeles musician Geneva Skeen's new album, A Parallel Array of Horses, released by Room 40 on October 19th, 2018. And we're going to play the title track, A Parallel Array of Horses. <laughs>